One of the interesting things about training in and working in the Church of England, which is where I came from to Hong Kong, uh, was that I ministered in a church that was built in the 14th century. Now, I'm from a country that was only founded in the 18th century, and so here was this amazing piece of history that I was working in week by week. It had uh, gray limestone building blocks. It, it had vaulted ceilings and a white interior. It was kind of plain by English standards, but by my standards, it was amazing. And one of the things that working in a building like that taught me is that as much as we think society changes and advances, really people are the same down through the ages. You see, in the front of this church, in the chancel, which is the part of the church where the communion table usually is, and uh, maybe there are choir stalls in there, in, in the chancel of this church, there was a little wooden door to one side. A and it was a small door, and it wasn't the door that we used to enter and exit the church. Those doors were much bigger and in, to the rear of the building. But here was this little door to the outside uh, in the chancel. And I couldn't figure out what it was or why it was there. And one day I asked one of the wardens uh, what that door was for. And he explained to me, because he had lived in this village all his life and his family uh, had lived there as well, uh, he explained to me that that was the door that the nobility used when they came to church. So they would come to church, uh, come through that special door just for them, sit at the front of the church where they could be seen by everybody, but where they wouldn't have to kind of rub shoulders with the smelly villagers. Uh, they would listen, maybe they would take communion, and then at the end they would leave through their special door without really interacting with anyone else. It was their privilege as the moneyed nobility class. And um, there was a, a lady in our congregation. She was 95 years old at this time. And I think she told me that when she was a, a young woman, she remembers seeing one of the last descendants of the Manu family whose plaques were plastered around the chancel. Uh, this woman coming in and sitting in her special place and leaving through that door without interacting with anyone. Now, that's just one example um, in one particular church, in one particular culture, but I think every Christian will be able to point to things in their own culture that show real divisions in the church. Ways that the, the rich and the poor, the, the black and the white, the, the upper classes and the lower classes will have separated themselves from one another or been separated by the other group. Uh, even if they were still members of the same congregation. And that is precisely what has gotten Paul so very upset in our reading from 1 Corinthians today. He goes so far as to say, if Christians want to maintain divisions like that, it would be better off not coming to church at all, not meeting at all as a church. Uh, first thing we're going to look at in these verses, in verses 17 to 22, is the abuse of the Lord's Supper that was happening in Corinth. Allow me to read uh, those verses again to you. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. 
Now you can kind of, I think, hear the sarcasm in what Paul is saying. The church in Corinth, it had many little factions, and each one was dead sure that they were God's approved faction. In chapter 1, we see that they had gathered around individual Christian leaders. So some were following Paul, and some Peter, and some Apollos. And they each had their champion that they thought was uh, better than all the others, and that made them better than all the other Christians. But some divisions were more clearly rooted in the Roman societal divisions, cultural uh, values, the honorable and the dishonorable the wealthy, and the poor. Uh, the distinguished members of the church, they didn't really want to mix with the commoners. And beyond having their own doors or seats in the church, they had their own meals, is what we find out in these verses. As we read the book of Acts, you'll, you may remember that part of what the early church would do week by week as they came together was they would share a meal together. Uh, these meals were so-called agape feasts or love feasts. Uh, they were beyond just the Lord's Supper. They were full meals that they would all share. And at some point, either before or during or after that agape meal, they would share the Lord's Supper together with the words of institution. But keep in mind that the, at that time, churches assembled in the homes of, of wealthier church members. They didn't have a, a special building that they could gather in. Uh, they had a home. And only the wealthy members had large enough homes that they could invite all of the church into. And that contributed to a problem in places like Corinth. Because the homes of wealthy Roman citizens were built to discriminate. When people would, would host a feast, when these wealthy individuals would host a feast, uh, they would invite people from a, a wide range of the society. So it wouldn't just be their friends. They uh, were seen to be um, honorable benefactors by inviting in a large uh, tranche of people. And um, then they wouldn't treat them equally. So, so in the triclinium, that's the dining room where the uh, highly esteemed members would gather in with the host, well, they would be reclining on comfortable uh, couches, and they would eat their dinner. The, the finest foods would be served there. The lower class guests and, and the slaves and, and the people who really were of no esteem, they would sit out in the atrium. They, they would squeeze in there, and, and they wouldn't be reclining. They would be sitting on hard chairs, and um, they would eat in these second class facilities. They would, um, the, the wealthier group would eat uh, the finest meats, they, they would drink the premium wines, they would really enjoy themselves, they would have large portions of food. A and this poorer group out in the atrium, well, they would get the scraps, really, scraps of meat, if any meat at all, the, the lower quality breads and um, maybe the, the closer to expiration uh, vegetables and really wine that you wouldn't want to drink, a kind of swill. The important people ate the good food, the poor people ate what they were given, and they were set, told to, to shut up, essentially. Uh, you're too poor to, to be demanding, you'll take what you're given. 
Roman dinner parties simply reflected and reinforced the societal hierarchies. And it seems that that wider cultural practice had made its way into the Corinthian church. When they gathered to worship in a wealthy person's home, well, this is how they organized their agape meals. And that's how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Rather than building fellowship across the whole uh, church, well, the wealthy people would enjoy their premium meals, and the poorer people would be left with the scraps and the crumbs. And so Paul explains to them, whatever you think you're doing, church, it is not worship. Verse 20, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. You know, some Christians think that if we could only get back to the early church the way they did things, well, we would be way better off. That would solve all our problems as if by getting rid of our buildings and our denominations and our ceremonies and maybe our ministers as well, if we got rid of all those things, well, then we would be back to the pure Christian faith. But it just takes a moment of reading the New Testament to see that even the early church wasn't the pure church. And we see here that if we believe that, then it's really just an excuse for why we're fed up with uh, our own church or the Christians that we know. There's no basis in reality. The early church was just as sinful as any church that you and I know. The early church um, was directly planted by the Apostle Paul in Corinth here, and only a few years later, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper um, in this uh, humiliating way to the poor. They were eating their own private dinners and neglecting uh, what the, the Lord's Supper was all about. They turned the very meal that was supposed to um, remind them of their unity in Christ into a way of stratifying society, uh, an occasion for indulgence and indifference. Some modern Christians continue in this long church tradition of division and factionalism. Certainly there are many churches that we, we could go to where we would see the, the wealthier and more socially impressive members completely ignoring the poorer and the less esteemed members. And I was trying to think, what would this look like in an international church like ours in Hong Kong? And I guess it might look like the domestic helpers being treated as second-class church members, as the, the expats and professionals uh, do all of their social events together and um, rub shoulders on one side of the church. Or, again, it, it could look like Hong Kong Christians, Hong Kongers, um, kind of 
sneering at and treating the, the mainland Chinese Christians with a certain indifference. Or it could look like the, the old guard in a church, um, never really bothering to, to invite and welcome and include the newer members of the church. Or it could be much simpler than that. It could just be uh, a member of the church who has fallen out with another member long ago. And though they come to the same service every week, they essentially have, haven't interacted in years. Now, those are real divisions in churches. And according to Paul, um, these divisions are a grievous thing. I don't know if any of those specific examples are happening in our church, but if they are, they need to be addressed, according to Paul. Even if they're normal, completely normal, in the outside culture, in the church, they're unacceptable. Paul said it would actually be better for a divided church like that if people didn't come, if there was no church, because it's doing more harm than good, he says. But how do you combat entrenched divisions like that, especially when it's normal in wider society? Uh, you know, maybe it's, it's been formed that way if, over many years, and it's really hard to break these habits. Well, Paul's answer is that we, we should repent of divisions and use the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to restore unity, namely, in this instance, the Lord's Supper. And that's what he comes to in the next section of 1 Corinthians, um, the meaning of the Lord's Supper in verses 22, sorry, 23 to 26. And if you've ever wondered what the Lord's Supper is all about, or if you've ever felt like, I just don't really get it, well, these verses give us a, a brief but a really rich overview of what it's all about. Now, Paul is citing Jesus' own words of institution at the, at the Last Supper. This is what Jesus said about what this supper was supposed to represent. It's something that um, the Corinthians would have already known. They would have already heard these words, and they should be familiar with them. But even though they know them, their actual practice has drifted well uh, apart from it. And I guess that most of us Likewise, we'll be really familiar with these words, but let's just take a moment to see how much they tell us about what the Lord's Supper is all about. In addition to what we've already said about how the Lord's Supper should bring unity in the church and, uh, and not division, well, I want to show you four more truths about the Lord's Supper from these verses. First, the Lord's Supper is ordained by the Lord Jesus himself, Secondly, it signifies his suffering and death. Thirdly, it is an effectual sign and seal of the new covenant. And fourth, it is a public proclamation of his death for us. So we'll go through those uh, one by one. First, the Lord's Supper is ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. That's what Paul says in verse 23. He has received it from the Lord. And if we want to, we could flip over to Luke 22, and we could see where Jesus is um, instituting this, this supper with his disciples. And what Paul has received from Jesus, he now passes on to all the churches he ministers in. 
It is not, therefore, something that we are free to do however we like, nor are we able to give the Lord's Supper any meaning we like. Jesus has given the terms, and he has commanded us to eat at his table. Obviously, the, the present circumstances that we're in with the pandemic, they've temporarily prevented us from meeting as a church, and they've temporarily prevented us from sharing the Lord's Supper as a church. But under normal circumstances, a Christian must regularly receive the Lord's Supper, or they're disobeying a direct command of Jesus. Different churches will organize that differently. I was raised in a church where communion was celebrated once a month. I've ministered in churches um, most of my time in ministry that celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, every other week. There are some churches that would celebrate it every week. What regular means is different according to denominations, and it's not expected that every Christian would receive communion every week. But however often we receive it, we must receive it. It's a command of Jesus. Secondly, then, the Lord's Supper signifies Jesus' suffering and death. The bread and the wine, they signify his body and his blood. Just as it is necessary to break the bread in order to distribute it and then to, to eat it and you chew it and uh, swallow, well, so it was necessary for Jesus' body to be broken on the cross so that we could be nourished by his death. And just as with the wine, it's, um, it needs to be poured out in order for it to be um, consumed. Why do we drink wine? Well, it brings gladness to our hearts, right? And in the same way, Jesus' blood had to be poured out to give us the, the abundant joy of eternal life, the, the overwhelming gladness of relationship with God. The bread and the wine, they serve as vivid reminders that Christians have to do with a suffering and crucified Savior. Every time we receive them, we are being reminded that it is only in His death that we can be nourished and that we can be refreshed and that we can have joy. And that's what the bread and the wine, they tell us as they're broken and poured out. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is an effectual sign, and it's a seal of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is an effectual sign and seal of the new covenant. At its most basic, a covenant is a, a relationship of law and love established by a promise. And in the Bible, covenants with God, they were always established and sealed by the shedding of blood. The Old Covenant was established by the shedding of, of blood of animals, and that pointed towards the, the New Covenant, which was established by the shedding of Jesus' blood. By his once and for all death on the cross, Jesus opened up a relationship of love between God and God's church. 
a covenant relationship where God promises to save His church. He promises to purify His church. He promises to glorify His church. So when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, what He's saying is that the Lord's Supper is the meal shared by all those in covenant relationship with God. Every time we eat the bread and we drink the wine with faith, it is a sign that God has made a saving promise, not only in general, but to me and to you if you eat. And as we eat and drink, we're consenting to the renewal of that covenant. It isn't that the bread and the wine is itself magical. This is just a store-bought roll, and this is just store-bought port. You could go out and get exactly the same things. But it's that God has made his saving promise to those who eat and drink in the context of the Lord's Supper. It's called an effective sign and seal because it means, um, it is a means, rather, by which God gives his grace to his people. It enlivens, it strengthens, it confirms our faith because God has promised that it will. That's what makes the Lord's Supper special. Fourthly, then, the Lord's Supper is a public proclamation of Jesus' death for us. Just as the church is called to publicly proclaim God's word in the world, so some people might hear it and repent and, and um, believe the gospel. And so in verse 26, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper for exactly the same reason. Some churches, they would rarely celebrate communion, and especially if they had um, seekers in the, in the audience, because they don't want to put people off, they don't want to make people feel excluded by rituals, and, and that is, I think, wrong according to what we read here. Because God has given this as an important way of proclaiming Jesus' death proclaiming the gospel. It's not a secret ceremony that we only do as Christians when we are all together and no outsiders are looking in. It's a way of publicly declaring that we are the people. We, the people eating and drinking, are the ones being saved. And it's an invitation to all those who are watching, come, receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be nourished by Him. Have your heart lifted, gladdened by Him, and become one of His people. And as we, do, we have to decide at that moment in any given church service, am I going to receive? Is this for me? Will I or won't I? We're forced to recognize where we stand with Christ. And I think that's a good thing. So you can see how very full of meaning the Lord's Supper really is. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and uh, spiritual grace that God gives to us. And it is central to the life of the church, which is why it's been difficult over the last year as we haven't been able to celebrate the Lord's Supper altogether as a church. I don't know when we will be able to share it altogether again in church, but when we do, I'd encourage all of you to partake of it. The Lord uh, commands us to and invites us to. And if you'd like to receive home communion in the meantime, uh, until we can partake all together again, well, I, I would be very happy. Please let me know 
and I'll um, make arrangements with you. Because we can see in these verses how very much is lost when a church doesn't partake of the Lord's Supper or when a church partakes wrongly. So I want to help you receive this ordinary means of grace to build up your faith and encourage you. And lastly, Paul goes into the right use of the Lord's Supper. That's what he goes into in verses 27 to 34. The Corinthians, they've been abusing the Lord's Supper with their disorderly and selfish conduct at dinner. And Paul has explained to them that the Lord's Supper really is about uh, these wonderful things that we've just spoken of. And so lastly, he warns them that they must change or they will face judgment. Verse 27, so, when, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And because the Lord's Supper is the covenant meal that, that conveys God's grace to the church, when it's misused and abused by a person, they are effectively rejecting the, the covenant, and they're refusing God's grace, and they're sinning against Jesus' body and blood, his death. Rather than receiving the benefits of his death, they sin against him, and therefore they invite God's judgment. It is a serious warning. And so how can we make right use of the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul gives two guidelines that will prevent God's judgment from falling on us when we eat the Lord's Supper together. First, examine yourself, and secondly, discern the body. First, examine yourself. Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. It is only as people confess their own sinfulness that they can receive the benefits of Jesus' death. The wealthy Corinthians, they thought they deserved a nice meal to, to eat at the Lord's Supper because of who they were. They, they were highly esteemed, but they were very wrong. The Lord's Supper is for those who recognize that they are unworthy and that Jesus had to, to die, to suffer and to die. That's how unworthy we are. He had to suffer and die to show us grace. That should be a humbling thing, and, and it should help us to come to the Lord's table examining ourselves rightly. But if we have sin that we are proudly holding on to, that we refuse to uh, confess and repent of, then we haven't examined ourselves in the right way, and we shouldn't participate. Now, this necessity for self-examination is why in the Anglican Church we always read a summary of God's law in the communion service. We always confess our sins together before communion. And just before the bread is broken and the wine is poured out, we always read the prayer of humble access together. And I think this prayer really gives us a model for our attitude as we come to the Lord's table together. Let me read it for you. Forgive the uh, old English turns of phrase. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, 
that our sinful bodies may be made clean by His body, and our souls washed through His most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in Him, and He in us. Amen. It isn't that our liturgy is magical in itself, but if we allow it to shape our hearts and our minds and our attitudes, well then it will help us to examine ourselves rightly in light of God's standards. Our self-examination should always lead us towards repentance. And when we read scripture and when we pray prayers like that, we allow God's word to expose our sinfulness. And we're being disciplined so that we won't finally be condemned with the world. That's what Paul says. Secondly, uh, after we uh, examine ourselves, we should discern the body of Christ. That's how we come rightly to his table. I think this is a way of saying that in addition to repentance, the Lord's Supper requires us to have faith. We must believe that Christ's body and blood were given for us. And we must take and eat the bread and drink the wine so that uh, we can be nourished by it. God has called us, and we must believe that He's called us, together with the whole church, to inherit His covenant promises. Uh, this is a kind of discerning faith that is both vertical, I am a, a covenant member of God's people, and it's horizontal. We are our covenant members together. And the Corinthians, they were failing to discern the body of Christ. And we see the consequences in verses 29 and 30. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. You know, it may be that God's supernatural judgment fell on the church in Corinth, and it may be that it still falls on churches where divisions are rife and where people are abusing the Lord's Supper. That is one potential way of understanding this. Another potential way is that, well, this is just the natural consequence of abusing the Lord's Supper. It may be that the overfed wealthy, they were faithlessly ignoring the, the hungry poor, and that people died as a result. God may well have allowed the, the rich to die from too much food and alcohol, while the poor died of malnutrition. But whether we think that this is speaking about God's supernatural judgment or His simply natural judgment, Paul pleads with them and us, learn the lesson. We must come to the Lord's Supper with faith. Whoever has that faith is welcome, even the, the smallest amount, because even the smallest faith will be fed and will be increased at the Lord's Supper. I'd invite you to, to pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your supper. We thank you that you welcome us to your table as uh, members of your family to feast with you. Please would you nourish our faith by it. Please would you gladden our hearts through it. Please as we partake, would we remember all that the Lord Jesus has done for us and might we rejoice together with all God's people we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.